This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 479 for October 21st, 2015. Our sponsors this week are Red Hat and Casper. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. Well, it's been a, I'd say a mixed week, a grab bag, a potpourri, a, uh, a selection of random events that we're going to talk about this week. After tons of news that's been going on, we now have something maybe a little quieter, a little bit uh, less intense. Don't you think so, Macworld Executive Editor Susie Oaks? Yeah, you know, every week is a, is a gift, and uh, <laughs> this week has been uh, has, has been a good one so far. You're so philosophical. There's, I yeah, feel that way, too. I was up really late writing reviews of Magic <laughs> Devices, so I, this is either going to be my worst podcast ever or my triumph. Oh, my God. Well, I will try to keep you uh, on the path of sanity, away from the cliffs of insanity. We will steer a path uh, between Scylla and Charybdis um, or something like that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm tired too. When I'm tired, I start using long words and obscure classical references without translating them. Uh, so uh, we got a bunch of stuff to talk about this week. It's kind of a fun week because there's so many things. We don't have like, you know, new iMacs and new software and new OS releases and, and whatever. But um, We just have Tim Cook on stage like leaking details. I mean, you know, it's not a leak when it comes from Tim, but yeah. You cracked me up. I didn't even know the event was happening. This is what used to be the D conference. Oh, I did. I was trying to get in. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Well, this is the Wall Street Journal Live, WSJ Live. It used to be the um, the D conference or whatever they called mm-hmm. it uh, before they decamped for haha from the Wall Street Journal oh. and started Recode. That's uh, Kara Swisher and Walt Mossberg. So now you have the D conference, which uh, has uh, I don't know what they call it. it's Recode Tech or whatever they call. It. I don't know. They've got a bunch of conferences now. They have a few, yeah. But they, you know, they used to be. They got um, it's always an amazing event because they could get the CEOs of every tech company to show up on stage and they get them to talk frankly because you know Walt's aggressive, but Kara doesn't take prisoners. She's not afraid of any of these guys and gals and she asks and then surprisingly people are i think these titans of industry are sometimes taken aback or relaxed or in this environment they appreciate and they will say stuff and and uh so wsj live that's just still a lot of great tech reporters some people hired uh uh after uh karen walt left um and they do uh, a really good job over there and that's mm-hmm. still a huge event yeah, so the so they got Tim Cook, which is neat, and um, Tim can be very frank about things. His, you know, his love for Alabama football, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if he talked about that, um, and uh, I assume that he's the reason that the Buckeyes color can now be represented appropriately in uh, the new. The, <laughs> he made sure that got in. <laughs> I know. Did you hear about that? It's no. so funny. Yeah. Well, I think isn't the Buckeyes? The Buckeyes have this particular shade of orange that doesn't can't be represented in RGB, uh, oh. but it can be represented in the new. Uh, P3 uh, color space that they're using on the new uh, the new uh, IMAX. Uh, it's That's just got amazing. a little more orange. In it. I was having this conversation. I thought it was funny. You can tell me this is not funny. It's okay. You can tell me. Um, I think Renee Ritchie at iMore tweeted something about a, uh, the color gamut. I go look at it. I'm like, oh, this is great. And they had one of those, you know, you see these typical pictures. You see oh, them all I the time. saw you guys going well, back and forth about well, he that. Well, I think he thought I was trying to give him a hard time. And I was actually thought it was both funny and like epistemological. When you show a color gamut, they show this sort of weird space that's kind of the shape of the spectrum, right? And it'll show this whole space of colors and how it's sort of represented. And it's this weird, it's, I don't know why the shape is that way. I don't know the color theory behind it. And then it's like, okay, well, if you're, you know, if you're on the LCD, you can see this color, these colors and it carves out, here's what sRGB space is. Here's what the new P3 space is. Um, 
so these are the colors that can be represented. And I'm like, I'm looking at this in an LCD and it's showing me colors outside that triangle. So what colors are they using to show me colors I can't see? And I just, <laughs> like, I can't see these. And the answer is, you know, they just shade off. They do a little shading of green. So the green you're seeing is not the green you could see in reality. If you go and look at grass, you can see the kinds of greens that actually can't be represented on a monitor. But anyway, it just, it was epistemological. Uh, all of that aside, sorry. All of that aside, Buckeyes football and uh, P3. Uh, so what? So Tim was on stage and he decided to leak all kinds of information. I guess it's not a leak if you're saying it publicly and you're the CEO. Yeah, not not really a leak. I was kind of kidding. Um, but yeah, he decided <laughs> okay. to say that the new Apple TV, which they had said before, I think they were going to take like pre-orders at the very very end of October. Um, so that yeah, there's a pre-order date and it's October 26th, which is Monday. And you'll be able to pre-order. The thing that I still haven't seen a great explanation of that we need to find out before people, you know, plunk down their credit cards is what's the deal with the two sizes? Have you heard what the deal is? I asked Apple and they didn't get back to me and I need the to The two storage sizes? Yeah. Like why? On the is, Apple TV. Why are they different? Yeah, like I mean, who should choose which and, and why? If you have more money, then you should spend <laughs> it on... <laughs> No, I don't know. We talked about it. That's what we're used to with all the other devices, but this is like a streaming device. And the one I have now has like, what, 16 gigs in it or something? And it works just fine. So I don't know why I should get the bigger one. It's totally, this is my interpretation from reading the technical documentations is that, so as we talked about before uh, with Brianna Wu, in fact, uh, uh, the uh, head developer at uh, Giant Space Cat, uh, and who's, you know, has some strong thoughts about Apple TV. Right. At some point, I'll talk to game devs. I talked a lot of them said they want to spend more time with the actual thing before they make opinions about it because only a few got development units and, and so forth. But the bottom line is it does really clever caching. And I think iOS is moving this way too. It lar you know, a lot of stuff on iOS that used to have to be on device is now cloud-based. The optimized iCloud, iCloud photo library, for instance, or streaming music, you know, you don't have to download it um, when you want to work with an image on an iPhone, it'll, if you're using iCloud photo library and have it set to optimize, it'll then download the full image locally. So with the new Apple TV, it's coming in 32 and 64 gig models. And I think depending on what you're doing, it, uh, it could be less frustrating if you have more storage because it means the device will purge its cache less frequently. So let's say you have a game that actually has like huge number of assets. It needs like two gigabytes. It's pushing the limit of what it can do. Well, if you've got a 64 gig unit and then you watch a movie, that's like five gigs, right? And so it'll pull that movie. It'll put that into local storage. Um, it doesn't stream it. It actually, I mean, it's streaming it, but it's downloading it at the same time because it wants to store it and not constantly consult the network. So Let's say you watch a movie, then you watch another movie, you have some, you know, you've got some other apps on there, you're doing some streaming. In the 32 gig unit, it's possible that that game's assets would start getting cleared out to make space, maybe even uh, that word I hate proactively, ahead of need, it'll predict like, okay, I'm going to need five gigs. The, that one gig is marked as perishable, so I'm just going to dump it. If you have 64 gigs, I think the odds of having to re-download assets for uh, games and apps that need them is going to be reduced, which means you'll hit the network less often. There's no guarantee. There's no way to mark, like, keep this game local in storage. You can't do that as a user or as a developer, but I expect that's what's going on. Now, why they're not marketing that way, I don't know. I mean, they're like, hey, we got two. I mean, that's your question, right? They've, they have two storage sizes. Okay, buy one or the other. It's okay. It's cool. They haven't really explained it to the customer, I, I, I don't think. 
I don't think so. I think you're right. I yeah. mean, I'm making suppositions, and I think they're yeah. They're no, valid, that sounds really not. logical, and that but that makes a lot of sense. I know the Fire TV does a lot of like guessing what you want to watch, and that's how it you know it starts so fast when you press play on something on your wish list, you know, or your queue or whatever they call it. It's because. Um, on your watch list, I guess, is because they know that you know you, you intend to watch that. So they kind of start downloading your watch list things. I don't know if they download the whole thing until you start yeah. watching it, but that's how you go from play to like it's playing instantly and there's no big loading thing, which is the most annoying thing about the Apple TV that I have now. So if they can fix that with these two bigger sizes, it might be worth it for me to get the bigger one. I just want Apple to you know try to make a case for it. Yeah, that's. I think that's my reaction too. Is I, but I mean, the fifty dollar difference is, it's so. I mean, you know, they're it's where they make the margin. Apple makes a lot of margin on on RAM and SSD because they can, because they they know that they have an audience that is willing to go up fifty bucks, hundred bucks, two hundred bucks, and that is it's not all margin, but it's gosh, is that a lot? I mean, when they charge you a hundred dollars difference between a sixteen gig and a sixty four gig iPhone. I, I don't know, you know, I don't know if all the numbers to hand, but typically that's going to be like, I don't know, $20, $25 at most, maybe much less. So yeah, I don't know. It's, um, it's interesting. So the other one was the, the, so the, the oh, page sorry. on apple.com just says starting at 149. <laughs> it <laughs> doesn't say, at. it doesn't say anything about a bigger model for 199, like on the actual so page, even if you do like the compare even if you look at the the specs, so but then the the press release from September does yeah. say I, it's so odd. I was just thinking the, they could say less frustrating model, more frustrating model. Yeah, I mean, right? you know, that's sort of I okay. It's in the tech specs. Yeah, yeah thirty-two gigs and sixty-four gigs, and it's fifty dollars. You don't want to you know market it that way, but I think that's what it's going to shake out. Is like if someone were to ask me, should I buy thirty-two or sixty-four? I'd say, do you think you're going to play games? And if you are. I mean, if you're going to play intensive games, I think you're probably going to want to spend the extra 50 bucks. You can't upgrade it later. And you buy the 32 gig one, you're like, and you know, if you have a relatively limited network bandwidth, like you're paying, you have caps and things like that, you don't want to download hundreds of megabytes, const, you know, re-download them all the time. It's kind so, of future-proofing in a way. Yeah. 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 And then if they do, if they expand that, they may, they may do more. And we don't know, right now they're pitching this as we're never going to let users or developers mark stuff as permanently stored. It's possible they will change that once they have more information or they'll, you know, release a 64 and 128 gig version and say, okay, with these models, including our original 64 gig one, you can now say, you know, retain assets, but you know, it's going to warn you, but I mean, they just don't want people to have to, to manage their storage. Managing storage yeah. is the worst thing. And um, I've gotten so many questions with iPhoto, uh, iCloud photo library, uh, which I, I wrote a wrong headline and it went through, which was, uh, you know, if you delete a photo from iCloud music library, is it gone forever? And people are like, what are you talking? I'm like, I'm sorry. I was listening that day. <laughs> I'm an iCloud Man. photo library, but I, you know, people, I, I just got this great question that I'm answering in Mac 911, which was guy has a one terabyte iMac. It's died an old one. And he wants, to, and he's got a 128 gig, um, uh, macbook pro that's a little bit older and, he, and but it can run uh, el capitan he wants to switch to photos he's like how do i manage this library I only ha you know i have a 400 gig photo library and 128 gig uh machine what do i do and i was like oh and you know get an external drive and then sync and then use optimization so you can have the optimized version if you really you know it's like it's this whole uh management thing even though it does optimization but it is a frequent question from people how they can deal with uh making sure they're not filling up the storage, even when they have, I mean, especially in SSD machines and older ones, but 
Um, I have a 512 gig uh, MacBook now, the 12 inch MacBook, and a 512 gig uh, SSD in for my uh, uh, Mac Mini. And in both cases, I have like 100 gigs free. And I have to watch it. Sometimes something goes wrong, and like the backup software misconfigured, it stores a file locally, and so I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got 20 gigs left. What's going on? Or yeah, no, I'm there all the time. My work Mac has 256 on it. Oh my I have god, how do you do that? 48 free right now, and that's after a big like diet. I I. I put I keep most of my stuff in Dropbox, so then I'm able to go in and select which Dropbox folders. So I have some Dropbox that's kind of like the deep freeze for you know like some music and some movies and stuff. Because I have a bigger iMac, but it's been in a closet for two years. I don't have good plugs to plug it into in my house, so I need to get my electrical upgraded. And I'm lazy, so I think we've probably heard this song before. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I'm working with, I have an 11 inch air that I think has 512 and I have this work Mac that has 256. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a struggle. It's a flaw with Dropbox. I would say is for all that I use it and love it is that selective sync is a pain of a feature and it should actually have um, like an easier way, like dynamic selective sync or like, Hey, you're on a constricted machine. You only have 20%, 30% of your storage left. Do you want us to uh, recommend what we shouldn't store here and, and, and monitor it. And then when you need stuff, you can sync it in. Uh, you know, that's going to be true. I'm, I'm getting gigabit ethernet or gigabit internet this week. It's I saw that on Twitter. That's exciting. And so your suddenly, kids are excited. Yeah. Said. So like Dropbox is suddenly a different thing. Like, you know, I don't need to have as much storage because the cloud is suddenly a hundred times more readily accessible. So I'm, I'm going to be curious what's that, what that's like when, uh, you know, I have these equivalent of a high speed LAN but it's a WAN. That's that's going to be very different. I think. Yeah, um, I mean, I have a whole tote bag full of hard drives in one of my closets. <laughs> that's I, I was cleaning on a closet today, and I was like, "Oh, here's another hard drive for the bag." So oh. I have a lot of backups and a lot of storage. It's just that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm using two MacBook Airs as like my only Mac. So I'm not tethered to a lot of things. I tried to go with that with the 12 inch MacBook for a little bit, but I didn't have the right adapters, so I kind of gave up. Oh man. Um, so hey, so Tim Cook also uh, disclosed some oh, yeah. Apple Music numbers, which were interesting. <laughs> so we, we've been waiting. The trial ended not very long ago, just a few days Let's get ago. Back to the news. And uh, people started canceling like mad, but but a lot of people did not cancel like mad. It seems like they had a pretty good conversion rate. So back in August, they said they had 11 million people, and that was when nobody was paying because it was still within the first three months of the service, and everybody gets their first three months free. If you haven't tried it at all, you could sign up today and still get three months for free. It's, it's uh, per user. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so they had 11 million, and now he said yesterday that uh, 6.5 million are actually paying. $10 a month. So when your trial is up, it's not like Spotify has a free ad supported tier and you can listen forever. Um, and that's why Spotify has 75 million members right. and about a third, I think they have 20 million. So a little less than a third are, are paying. And, uh, Apple said that now they have 15 million, you know, using the service and 6.5 are paying. So it's a little more than a third. So that's pretty good. If, you know, those are good numbers. Um, and Spotify has, you know, a seven-year head start, but they also had to, you know, kind of convince people that streaming was a, a thing that they should do and they should pay for. And Apple, you know, doesn't have that that road, uh, quite as long a road there mm -hmm. because people are sort of used to the model. I could be snarky and say, you know, 6.5 million people forgot to cancel, but... <laughs> that's how some services work. I mean, it's not the, it's not AOLification. It's a big enough bill that people are going to notice it is the thing. It's not, and they'll remember signing it up. And I believe Apple notified me, didn't they? I think I got an email that said 
uh, your free trial is about to end, and here's a link. So did you get yeah. that? I think. Well, I had already canceled, so I got oh. a link saying your free trial is about to end. Here's how to like sign up. You know, sign up before you lose everything. Oh, because we, oh. we know we know that you canceled, but you, you have a chance to like uncancel. I haven't canceled. I haven't canceled yet. It's probably more than I need to spend, but I feel like it actually does good music discovery, and I want to play with it more. I didn't use it. I used it sometimes. I'd pull stuff up as on a trip with my kids, and I'm, I'm pulling stuff up while trying to drive and not be distracted. I was like, oh, I'll just tap Frank Sinatra and it played a bunch of stuff. And I want to. I want to see how I can learn more about music I haven't listened to rather than access stuff I have. I can access totally. stuff I have already. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good service. I like it. If I wasn't already like a deep audio user and I wasn't streaming, I probably would have done the trial and then kept paying. I think it's streaming music is worth paying $10 for. So then it's just like, which service do you like the best? And they all kind of have their advantages. And I just like RDO the best. So, but yeah, it's great. Cause I mean, you get to discover new stuff. You'll get like a notification when, you know, bands that you like have something new. So you never miss anything. And then you get to, yeah, go back and fill in all the gaps in your old knowledge. Like I can spend three days listening to nothing but like, you know, Roy Orbison or something. That, oh, that sounds you know, great. Like, yeah. Like you've heard of him. <laughs> or I've heard of him and I don't know that much, but I know like a couple of the big hits and you go back and just listen to like everything. You find like a box oh, set of, yeah, they have binge. like all these big box sets and stuff up there and you can just listen forever. It's so great. Binge listening. I forget about that. That's, mm-hmm. that's a, like a luxury. And I've forgotten about like when I was young, I would just do that, but I would get albums. I get stuff out of the library, the library. Yeah. Uh, well, let's take a break before we go on for this week's potpourri so I can thank one of our sponsors, Casper Mattresses. One of the coolest thing about Casper is that they somehow ship you a bed through a package delivery service. I kind of I love that idea. They're, they're an obsessively engineered American-made mattress company, and they offer shockingly fair prices. And you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase if you go to casper.com slash macworld, that's C-A-S-P-E-R, and use the code MACWORLD. So here's the thing. You spend about a third of your life sleeping. I know I try to. I don't know if I always manage <laughs> to do it. That's my goal. I would love to spend a third of my life sleeping, but you should make sure you're doing it on a good mattress. And Casper, it brings together two comfy technologies for a, a better nights and uh, maybe crisper-headed days, latex foam and memory foam. They stick those two together so you've got just the right sink and just the right bounce. Here's the other remarkable thing. Even though they're shipping you a mattress in a box that when you open it kind of unfolds and turns into a full-size thing, it's magic. It's a transformer. <laughs> They've got a risk-free trial and return policy. They deliver it to you. You can try for up to 100 days. If you're not happy, they come pick it up. Remarkable, right? So, uh, you know, at a store, you can try a mattress for maybe a minute. This way, up to 100 days. You don't like it, it gets returned. They charge $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size mattress. If you compare that to industry averages, it's an outstanding price point, plus the trial. So get $50 off today. Any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash macworld, C-A-S-P-E-R dot com. Use the code macworld. Terms and conditions apply. So thanks to Casper for being one of our sponsors this week. And now... Oh, we have so many other things to talk about. Well, let's zoom. We'll zoom through. All right. So uh, I'll try not to ramble as much. <laughs> so uh, 4K Mac, IMAX, we talked about uh, uh, last week, and there'll be more to say about those. I'll be curious when they get put through more paces and people start having them in hand. I'm really, I'm really curious about. Um, I, I, I'm still working on a non-retina uh, a- an Asus monitor I bought not too long ago. That's really quite lovely. It's IPC or uh, no, I, I'm sorry, in, uh, IPS. In plain, IPS thing, IPS, and it's very bright, and it's. Um, 
Uh, it's exactly right, but it's not Retina. And I, I wanted to get a decent monitor that was up to speed, but it was just long enough ago, about a year ago, that Retina scale monitors were still very expensive. So, uh, you know, do I want to spend $500 today to swap to one? I think I'm just going to hold out um, a bit longer. So, but I'm also curious about whether I might swap in the Mac Mini I got for an iMac because of performance reasons and just use another external monitor with it. We will see. Um, so you just posted, Macworld just did their reviews, your reviews of the magic accessories. And uh, <laughs> yes, uh, your response in our show notes, it's meh. <laughs> meh. I'm yeah, hearing a, a lot meh. of that. I'm hearing a lot of that about... Yeah. So like the first trackpad came out five years ago, so it hasn't changed in five years. And, and they made it a little bigger and they gave it a battery, which is good. And they they gave it like one additional click. And the trackpad is the thing I like the best. Like the keyboard, I guess, you know, they just wanted to make it match with the others with their batteries. But it's the most basic of Bluetooth keyboards. Um, and then Roman reviewed the mouse and that actually sounded like it improved a little bit because I use the magic mouse at work and the rails do kind of like scritch, scratch on the table a little bit sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's when they're gunked up and I de-gunk them, but they're still, they're, they're not totally smooth. And he said that this one is like noticeably smoother. Like they knew about that and they fixed it. So that's cool. But I mean, I don't know. I don't think I'd spend my own money on any of these. Oh my God. That's, that's an indictment. Yeah. I mean, there's the testing thing and there's the, you know, would you want one at home? And, uh, I, yeah, I, uh, none of it sounds that compelling partly because I have a 12 inch MacBook, so I already have forced touch and I like a mouse. I like a mouse. I, I like a mouse too. I mean, I was having, someone was having a discussion on Twitter about, you know, mouse versus trackpad. I feel like they're totally different animals, it, you know, and I've gotten, I mean, it's not that I don't like a trackpad, but it's got a very particular use case for me. I never want one when I'm at a desktop fixed machine because I have a different layout and different brain configuration for that. Yeah, I had to put my mouse away to test this thing in a drawer because Ouch. I just would kept reaching for it. So yeah, the trackpad kind of hurts my hand if I try to use like if, when I'm, when I'm in on a like a work trip and I don't have a mouse with me and I'm just been using my trackpad for days, I get these weird like tingly kind of painful feelings on the top of my hand. So that's probably bad. I haven't brought it up with any doctors because I'm afraid of getting old. But um, I'll say you have to have your hand removed. I'm sorry. Oh man. So, so, so the trackpad can be tough if I'm like trying to click and drag something and you're kind of clicking with your thumb while like dragging with your finger, like Mm -hmm. that kind of weird motion, like really aggravates it. So I was complaining about that on Twitter as you do. And someone clued me into the three finger drag. So I, I think I had tried like a tap to drag kind of gesture a while back and didn't like it and turned it off. So, and it's not in the system preferences trackpad pane anymore. Now it's in, in accessibility. So Chris Finn just did a cool thing for us on like kind of these hidden features and accessibility that people should know about. Oh. Um, so anyway, yeah. And then you wrote about one too. So the, this one's great. Three finger drag. It's in, um, so accessibility, you go down to like mouse and trackpad and then you click trackpad options and it's in there. So that just lets you, you just kind of like tap on something with three fingers. You can move uh, a window. You can, um, on text, you like tap on a word with three fingers and then just start dragging from that letter or word. And it selects the text really well. Um, I, I was using it to crop photos and Pixelmator and having no problems. Like it instantly felt natural and I usually take a while to get used to new gestures, but this one was like the one I was looking for. Ooh. So thanks, 
Twitter guy. Um, and <laughs> I don't have Twitter open. I closed everything so I could podcast. Uh, fail. Anyway, yeah, I will uh, shout you out later because that was the best. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I, I just uh, I'll, I'll sidebar this note for later. Is um, I've never really used a, a guided uh, access in iOS, and um, it's a great feature because someone asked, someone wrote into Mac Diamond One and said, "Is there a way to prevent someone else using my computer, a hem grandkid, from accidentally?" deleting an image in uh, photos and then having it irretrievable. And I said, well, you know, photos, both iOS and OS 10 has the nice feature that when you delete, you're actually putting it into a, you know, uh, deleted photos folder. I forgot the name what they call. They have some like, inner, you know, Recently wording. deleted. Recently I think. deleted. Yeah, recently yeah. deleted, which is an odd thing to say. It's not deleted if it's in the folder. It's like, it's, it's the deletion queue. It's on its way to that great uh, incineration plant. And uh, you have 30 days, uh, more or less, to um, retrieve them before then. But you can also go into that folder and delete, and then it permanently deletes from everywhere. So that's scary. And I was, said, you know, there's really no way to prevent this from happening that I could tell, uh, except to make sure people don't go into your recently deleted folder. And then someone wrote in and said, no, guided access. And iOS, you can set it up in accessibility settings, and you triple click the home button is one of the default option, uh, and then you can identify areas on the screen. And and um, now uh, Steve Aquino, who's written for uh, MacWorld and a lot of publications about uh, use of uh, Macs in uh, classroom environments with disabilities, when he used to be a paraeducator uh, and worked with uh, autistic kids, he said this was invaluable to be able to lock things to. A one app so they wouldn't accidentally switch out or intentionally. And the other is it, you can mark out areas that can't be touched. So you can essentially disable controls. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's great. And I, and so I was like, oh, yeah. So if you want to do this, hand this to your grandkids on your phone. Let them swipe through photos, but disable the trash can and leave them in there. Then when they're done, they hand it back and you unlock it. So that's that's an option. I used that on a road trip once with my son when he was one years old. It was like a really long trip and we were almost home. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to play a little Sesame Street for him. Bring us home, Elmo. And he kept kicking the screen with his little feet. Like I had it kind of mounted on and up in the car. And uh, he kept kicking the screen and stopping the video. Then he'd get upset and I'd have to start Aww. it for him again. So I put it in guided access mode so he could kick the screen and nothing would happen. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Uh, yeah. You know, related to this was uh, Jason Stell wrote a column recently for Mac World about force touch, distinct from three. So on iOS, it's 3D touch. On uh, the Macs, apparently, it's force touch still, right? They're, they're distinguishing yes. that. And uh, and I've complained about this before or just noted it, that the, I, uh, the 12-inch MacBook, I don't think of anything I do with it that uses force touch. I don't mind it being there, but I've completely forgotten it exists. And Jason had the same reaction. He's like, yeah, okay, great. Now you have a force touch capable uh, trackpad that you can buy if you don't have a, you know, one of the, the 12-inch MacBook. But there's just not much that happens in OS 10 yet. And so that's ostensibly more development needs to happen there to make it useful. But I, I don't know. I wonder if it's the right milieu when you have modifier keys. They're trying to get people away from the control key or a right click, I guess. And, uh, Help yeah, make those there's so many gestures. Accessible. Like the the biggest force touch thing, kind of out of the box, is the thing where you force touch a word and you can get its definition or something. But that's in there already. Is like a three finger yeah. tap. So if you you know, I I kept pulling up force click by accident. Like when I was trying to do that click and drag thing before I got wise to three finger drag, I kept hitting force click by accident when I was just trying to click things. And it was so annoying. I was like, is this trackpad going to make me like turn off its key feature because I keep pulling it up by accident? Like when are my fingers going to learn 
what's a click and what's a force <laughs> click. <laughs> yeah. I feel like on the phone, the phone always knows what I want it to do. The phone just knows. And the phone's better at accidental touches, ignoring. And I know mm-hmm. the phone has a lot more layers and a lot more technology in the screen than, than might be here in, in this trackpad. But the trackpad just, you know, was a little overwhelming when I'm used to the awesome experience on the phone. Your phone understands you best. Susie. It does. It My phone gets you. me. This it trackpad does. doesn't get me yet. But we're working on it. Yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of loving. I got my iPhone 6s, and I'm kind of loving 3D touch. It's, it's sort of cool, like right? it feels good. I mean, not to be disgusting, but it's like it actually is a really. It's a different kind of interaction. It's like oh, you know, push that in, and it's like it's it is like pushing into the screen. Like you have a whole different. It, it does feel like 3D. I mean, I'm gonna be sound like a marketing person, but it does have a different sense because you're working on 2D and then you go, you push in a little bit, and like oh, the image pops up, the thing comes up. Um, Tweetbot, which I use extensively. Uh, added 3D and like a micro update. They added uh, a 3D touch additions, uh, and um, it's a different app in ways. You know, I'm on a tweet, I hold down, I, and I get a peek the thread, and then I can pop into or, or what is it, peek and uh, peek and pop. Yeah, peek and pop. Peek, that's funny. Peek, I'm an old programmer, so peek and pop. You know, I I was using those in the 1970s. That's a very particular meaning. So it's like really peek and pop. Okay, peek and pop on the Mac would be amazing oh, if they could so if they could re- replicate that on the Mac side, or at least I mean, Jason's columns suggested you know just giving more APIs to developers. I think they have some, but like just you know giving them kind of a, a uniform thing to do, like with the quick actions and the peek and pop on iOS. Like it was very defined. Like here, do these. These were great. So, and yeah, I, I started out being like, oh, 3D touch on, on iOS. It's a kind of a cool demo. I was like using it to demo people when they'd say, yeah. oh, it's new about your phone. I'd show them peek and pop and stuff, but then I wasn't really using it in my workflow. But as more apps have been updated to use, um, the quick actions from the home screen, I'm using that all the time. So that's what's kind of dragging <laughs> me in. The thing that cracks me up though, is I have my phone, uh, by my bedside and I put it in do not disturb during ostensible sleep hours that third of the day that I'm trying to sleep and um, <laughs> new research says maybe we don't need to sleep a third of the day gosh darn it what have I, I've been fooling myself all these years but uh, so in the morning though like at 7 o'clock or something it goes off so if I happen to sleep past 7 I'll be lying there and I have a couple things I can buzz my phone including nuzzle as previously discussed I was in there it's like <laughs> like, gee, what the hell is going on? It's just, um, it's rather loud when it's on a vibrating surface that yes. you're attached to through a bed. So it's it's on a table near me, but because I'm in the bed, the bed's like, I'm like, I didn't put a quarter in the bed, I swear. Have you had the bug yet where you tell it to update the software in the middle of the night and then it like turns off your alarm? No, but I know you. <laughs> I have you a couple have. times. It's I have not. I turn that off. I do not let uh, software update automatically because I uh, I just don't trust that it will do the thing I want to do. Okay. I never trust it. Fair Listen enough. to me. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, Adobe, every time I update Flash, which we'll be talking about in a moment, it's like, hey, do you want to have us update this automatically? It's like, no, no, I don't. I want you to no, tell God, me. No. And then when I'm ready, I will go through the process because you can't keep it secure. Why would I trust you to do updates? No, yeah. thank you. Apple's earned my trust to update oh. automatically, but I could see yeah. why some people wouldn't want to. Yeah. Uh, we had a little patent story to talk about, though. Uh, and just, I think, briefly, because it's boring and Apple has $200 billion in the bank and they'll sort this out is, is uh, 
uh, Wisconsin. Hey, go. Uh, I no joke. I'm wearing a Wisconsin sweatshirt right now. I think you might have to declare your bias. We need to talk about ethics and journalism now. I'm sorry. My husband went to Wisconsin for undergrad, and then he did a little graduate work there. And I lived in Madison for two years. But is, I went to Northwestern, and we are better oh. than them in football this year. And that's never going to happen again. So is your husband's name Jan Janssen? Is the question though? Huh. I, my name is Jan Janssen. I come from Wisconsin. No. All right. <laughs> no, sorry, he's not. Sorry. That's, um, that's Univers- pretty good. Yeah. So uh, most universities have um, licensing transfer arm or technology transfer arms. In fact, uh, one of uh, my wife's uncles, uh, he worked for, uh, not for, I do not have a conflict of interest. He worked for the University of Michigan's uh, very, very good um, technology transfer arm. What they, they work is because a lot of institutions, public or private, it's expensive to run a university. And uh, I'm not going to cry for like Yale, which is my alma mater, or you know, or these well-funded public institutions that have huge endowments. Uh, but uh, it was a way to say, oh, look, all this stuff. We're, we're getting grants. We're um, working on this stuff. The university's underwriting it, and then other companies make a billion dollars off it. We should get some of that back. We should be licensing and and also encouraging the stuff in the labs. And in development, whether it's, you know, engineering or biotech, is actually used for the good of humanity. So licensing is a way to do that. So there's – I forget the patent part, but like actually making sure the technology is used, understood, people get credit, and it helps fund new stuff in academia, which is where a lot of stuff happens in academia. They're willing to take more risks uh, about certain kinds of things. So anyway, University of Wisconsin-Madison uh, sued Apple over some issues about, you know, processor chip design improvement performance blah you know it's some super technical thing that is so detailed Intel already settled a small amount years ago for this Apple wants to pay a lot less and you know this is going to drag through the courts and eventually it's going to probably going to be reduced and then it's going to be you know Apple's going to pay them 200 million dollars or something and it's all right whatever but these things get a lot of play because the lawyers rack up tens of millions of dollars in uh in charges and it just sort of seems like in the end, is there enough benefit to having done this unless there's a clear violation and uh, you know, a company sort of founded its business model on, on uh, this kind of violation? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Wisconsin could really use the money right now. I know they oh, had some problems <laughs> with uh, the, the current governor of the state trying to, to reduce the funding going to the school. I read some articles that made the organization that goes after, you know, like defends these patents kind of sound like a bunch of like, you know, collegiate like patent trolls. And I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Like, you know, Apple, I'm sure didn't know they were infringing on this patent. Like, you know, if, if they even were like that kind of stuff is, can be argued either way. And yeah, but you know, Wisconsin could really use the money. <laughs> they had a kerfluffle recently with a, a professor kind of going on Twitter and telling incoming freshmen before the school year started, like, this place isn't like, you know, might not be what they sold you this year. Like, oh. we're, we're falling short on a little, some stuff. And she got, like, censured by her colleagues. And it was this whole, like, embarrassment. They were saying, like, you got to stick up for your school. But, yeah, oh, so they're, they're going honest. through a tough time. Yeah, that's rough. We just got, uh, strangely, in Washington State, our legislature, which can agree on nothing and is actually unconstitutionally underfunding education. It's under a uh, contempt of court order by the Supreme Court. Which just wow, in a small, small world thing. This is a form of glenning. This is like extended glenning. Is Jason Snell's wife's aunt is actually one of the Supreme Court members in the state of Washington, and she is awesome, and I voted for her, and she makes great decisions. So that's cool. the small world thing. So the Supreme Court of Washington State has said 
you know, you're not actually meeting this paramount duty as the Constitution defines. So anyway, we, but our state, the legislators, legislators uh, actually decided that college education in Washington is too expensive, and they voted to uh, slash tuition and fund higher education even more because our tuition went up so fast. Um, and that was kind of cool. Kind of cool. Make it more accessible to more people for less money. What a weird yeah. idea. Weird. Um, speaking of weird ideas, I want to talk about the internet for a moment. <laughs> it's a really <laughs> weird idea. idea ever. It's a, it's the longest running consensual hallucination. Uh, and, uh, we're sponsored this week also by Red Hat, which is the makers of one of these, uh, this consensual hallucination. They no, make so the internet. They make the internet. They, they're, Red Hat is kind of this, uh, this thing in the background that a lot of people don't realize exists because people know that open source software is important and they know that it helped, you know, make the web what it is combination of things. Things put into the public domain and open source, and you know this is how uh, the the web was built and the internet was built on the backs of this kind of thing. And uh, you know it's still true today. You've got Berkeley Unix, TCP/IP, BSD Linux, Android, the Internet of Things. A lot of this is based on open source or derives from it in some fashion. So Red Hat has been answering the question of whether open source can be used in an enterprise situation to do important work. Um, And they've been answering this question for over a decade. They started with Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Today, they certify and support application development, storage, and cloud infrastructure for every conceivable enterprise kind. Uh, You'll find them in the New York Stock Exchange at DreamWorks, each and every airline, healthcare company, and telecom giant in the Fortune Global 500. And more than 90% of all the Companies in the Fortune 500 are Red Hat customers. Why? Because they get the powerful, constantly improving innovation of open source without the risk of having to do it alone. It's that simple. Red Hat enterprise software trusted in the world's most demanding data centers. And you can find out what they do for yours at redhat.com. Uh, yes, the longest running consensual hallucination. If we all stopped believing in the internet like Tinkerbell, it would disappear. This is a fact. <laughs> But that could never happen. In my loose definition of fact, uh, it's the Monty Python sketch, the uh, the building uh, apartment buildings by hypnosis. <laughs> Look it up. We should put a link in that. It's an excellent scene. It's like, you're right. That is too cheap. And the building starts to fall down. Anyway, so um, speaking of Flash, I know we were speaking of Flash. Uh, we <laughs> You wrote an article about how to uninstall Flash. Now, th- that sounds like some good advice anytime, but why did you write this particular article on how to uninstall Flash? Well, I saw some news about another zero-day exploit, and they said that there was just no fix for it, and the only defense against it was to uninstall Flash. So I was like, okay, Caitlin, I think, was out, and I had to write the news. So I went to um, <laughs> I went to look up you know the Macworld article on how to uninstall Flash so I could link it up, and I really didn't find like a straight forward this is how to uninstall flash so i went and uninstalled flash on my own mac and took screenshots and wrote it up for you because i care that's awesome yeah it's i mean i think the advice right now is if you don't need flash you shouldn't have it uh installed Turns out i don't really need it i haven't needed it since if you do need it macworld has a bunch of articles on installing like click to flash i use a what was it called flash uh block and Firefox, there's click to flash, all these things that won't de- load flash by default, or you can whitelist specific sites. Uh, because I still need, I need flash to be able to watch ads. Susie, I need to watch ads. So I gotta have flash. 
I mean, I'm still seeing plenty of ads. I, just, uh, I don't know. No, I know. It's, just, I, it's a lot of video sites. Uh, you know, YouTube now does HTML5. A lot of sites do do HTML5-based video, which still relies on uh, encoders in the browser. But um, there are a lot of places you go to, especially older sites, where you're like, oh, I want to watch that how-to video. Oh, they uploaded it, and I need to load Flash because they used a Flash player. And uh, But you can click and load that one Flash thing, and you're not invoking, like, the universal anybody who gets you to open a URL will violate, will destroy your machine. So uh, there's that. The other uh, security thing this week was fascinating. Um, Apple pulled a bunch of apps that were using a common advertising kit that uh, mined your information, like your email and what apps you had installed and all kinds of things that violate the App Store guidelines. Woo! That was bananas. Yeah. There's a lot of apps too, wasn't it? Yeah, it was some standard platform and the platform had hidden in there uh, ways to grab your private data a clear violation, and Apple uh, was reported. We that to Apple. only happened on Android. Yo, <laughs> we hey, were know, wrong. I, I bought an Android phone, and I bought a Windows 10 laptop. What's, oh wow! What's going on here? You feeling okay? I'm. Um, I got the fever. I got the Android <laughs> fever. Uh, no, I just. This man I, is infected. I do not know enough about other platforms i decided i used to use them more regularly and i you know but then i was like you know i write i write about ios i need to understand android better i got thank you for doing that because so many people like tend to just get the blinders on and the tunnel vision with apple and i get it like apple makes everything but i was away from the apple for like almost two years and it was a it was a wonderful time of using other operating systems and like hey android's actually pretty great now I it's, love Google Now, so I uh, it's it. it's Google Now is amazing. I think the interface. I actually think it's um, I want to say friendlier without being like dumbing it down. I thought the setup process was much more geared toward. Now, since I hadn't used an Android phone in year or set one up in years, I've used I used friends and I've had loners and things. Uh, this is the first one I've set up for myself uh, in like five years or four years, and the setup process is better than iOS. iOS gives you information, but it's sort of spare and apple focused and it uses a lot of apple kind of ecosystem stuff android even though it's you know you log into google and whatever if you want to um they i felt like as a new user coming to it i'm like i had no questions told me what to do it was very friendly even the animation approach uh, for things I, I felt handheld and there's a lot of, it's a very different interaction on the lock screen and um i like the yeah. notifications it's I, I it's very nice and this the, i got this phone particularly after consulting Greenbot's own uh flow ion i said uh, i'm thinking of the moto g because it's a hundred this is the other thing 180 dollars. now it's not a super fast phone it's very well reviewed it's unlocked uh it does world bands this lte and uh, it's not bad and you know 180 bucks if you lose it or it breaks it's 180 bucks it's not a 750 dollar phone yeah so you can't do everything on it cuz it doesn't have high enough performance but it's a really nice uh nice phone and um these new Nexus phones sound awesome. Oh, yeah. Everybody's and, and, freaking out about how great they are. There's competition in this space. So so this phone, I checked, and Flo said this they, it should be upgradable, or it's been promised to be upgradable to the new Marshmallow 6 release, and so uh, Android 6. So it's got 5.1 on it now, I think, and I'll be able to test. Then when I'm testing or setting up how-tos, you know, here's how you do it in iOS, here's how you do it in Android. Same thing, I got a $200 HP Stream 11 with Windows 10 installed, and... Uh, uh, that is not as good an experience as <laughs> Windows 10. You go one layer. This is the same problem I had from Windows 7 <laughs> to the present. You go one layer beneath the new interface, and suddenly you're in old XP land. The same kind of dialogues and navigation and strange deep settings. So they, they keep putting more Chrome on top of it. But um, 
Uh, and this is a $200 Windows 10 machine runs very slowly, but again, I need it to screen captures process, not performance. Well, that was a sidebar, but a uh, uh, little, just tiny bit of almost housekeeping news is if you have a Retina MacBook Pro and the screen coding goes bad, Apple has announced a uh, screen replacement program, which is, um, seems like they're getting ahead of this. Nice. I think that's all we have to say. So, because I know people worry about it, they're like, "Oh, I have this thing, and it's out of warranty or whatever. I didn't get Apple Care." Like, well, contact Apple. Then we have a story. We'll put a link in the show notes about. Oh, I know this came up a bit. Another little. This is our grab bag. Uh, ba- backing out of beta has hurt a fair amount from people who had. Uh, we talked uh, in, uh, quite a bit over the last few months about the public betas of uh, iOS and OS 10, and how those were generally uh, reliable. But uh, some people found themselves, especially when. Uh, so, did you have this situation, El Capitan? ships and uh there's sort of two scenarios one is you get the golden master and you're like well i want the production version but you can't do that if you're in the beta program the second is i'm in the beta program uh you know enrolled in it and now it's telling me it wants to install 10.11 or yeah, 10.11.1 i don't want that i'm on a stable release i don't need to test the dot one release how do i stop that so i wrote a couple of uh, mac diamond one items about that you can find but the trick is if you are if you install the Golden Master of El Capitan, you have to go and like go to the App Store, download the full release version, which is slightly different, not very different, but it's got a different build number. Download it and do a full like upgrade install. You don't have to delete your files, but you've got to run the installer, you know, and spend hour, two hours, whatever it's gonna take on your machine to install the hmm. release version. I know. Um, the other one is easier is if you have 10.11, whether the Golden Master or the production release, and you're getting notifications. We, oh, we talked about this. That's right. But I'll just remind people, uh, there's an app store, uh, Mac app store preference pane, which I forgot existed. And you can go there and click a button and opt out of the beta program. And then it stops reminding you every day there are beta updates. So if that's bugging you, um, iOS 9 is trickier because it, you do you get the release version of iOS 9, uh, but you can't. you have to have backups if you want to go if you have ios if you've installed ios 9.1 and you didn't do a backup of ios 9.0 of the release you want to back up to so then not was we at 9.0.2 now is that right oh, man i'm still on the gold master yeah see it's tricky i, know. I opted out but i didn't upgrade to the real one is this el Capitan? yes yeah so when I just looked up my when build 10. number. When 10.11.1 comes out, the release version, you will get upgraded, I believe. It will properly upgrade you to that, and then you will be back on the release tree. Oh. Uh, that is my understanding. I think uh, if it won't happen, then you're going to have to download a full 10.11.1 installer and run Which you know, I could do. An upgrade. I know. It's not the end of the world. It's just like another thing. It's something. But the, the iOS 9 part, you really you have to do a full uh, – you need an iTunes backup. I mean, you can do Time Machine backups – to, to revert on a Mac, but iOS, because it's cloud-based, a lot of stuff, it seems a little different, but if you don't have, say, an iOS 9.0.2 backup before you install the 9.1 beta, you can't really go backwards because you you, you can't install, just go and install 9.0 and then update your files. You know, you can do that in a Mac. You could go back, yes. install a previous release, copy files over. Well, so and then your backup won't work. You can't back up exactly. a nine. You can't restore a nine point one backup exactly. to a nine point oh phone. I had that problem. Yeah, so it's when I bought my new phone that you snapshot your backups and make notes of what OS is if you're doing the beta testing. Otherwise, you will find yourself. I, in fact, I had to do that. I was doing some testing, and Apple said uh, this isn't going to work in nine one yet because it's beta. And, oh, okay. So you should you should probably 
convert to 9.0 and I found my iPad. I'd never done a backup, but I don't have vital stuff on it. So I, I wiped it and went back to 9.0 for testing and it worked fine. Uh, but, uh, you know, without the complete backup, what do you do? Um, Susie, are you an iWork user? Do you use pages and numbers? Not and such? so much. I really like iWork. I don't really need a full office suite very much. I use Excel a little bit more than numbers. Numbers kind of confuses me. But I love pages and Keynote better than Word and PowerPoint. So mm. I was excited to see that iWork got a big update this week. We've got reviews in the works of everything. It's, uh, I will be reviewing pages five point whatever is coming out. It's a Sweet. big, it's a big update. Well, one of the interesting, yeah, I, I, uh, have been using, I mean, I, Excel is much more powerful than numbers, obviously, but I prefer numbers for a lot of what I do. Occasionally I have to dip into Excel, but numbers, I'm like, you know, I just want to make a quick chart of a thing or I've got just a straightforward, like five row table. It's just so much easier to work with. Um, but pages, I, far prefer pages to any other word processor and you can export dot doc and dot doc x files but um i had this problem where if you export a dot doc it can have it can be like one and a half megabytes and your uh pages file is 200k like what is it doing what did it put <laughs> what did yeah. it put in that file i don't understand and then i'll have people they open it they're like ah this broke i couldn't edit it or i opened it and it crashes word on mac or windows like oh okay so ostensibly uh they had some notes about it doing better exporting so maybe it'll work there um better um so you know it'll it's up all the apps are updated for split view and force touch and that'll be neat to try uh the other thing is i thought this was fascinating um all three programs, Pages, Numbers, and Keynote, now uh, open older versions of files than the previous releases did. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. That's a weird move by Apple. I mean, it's great, but it's weird. Like, they never increase compatibility, backwards compatibility. Well, it seems like that should have been in there to begin with. Like, I was surprised that they were, like, so, like, you know congratulatory about it oh you think that it was on a checklist and it just didn't make the five point whatever even though five point has been out for a long time or the five yeah it's been tree. out for a long time and yeah. but they were like oh we rebuilt it from the ground up which is you know kind of which is fun to hear but also so, sort of code for yeah like left a bunch say, of stuff say out. goodbye <laughs> to your old files unless you do some weird conversion and, and they might not come out right so I, I didn't have old files, so I wasn't really affected by this, but you were getting a lot of questions to Mac 911, right? Yeah, I've written a few pieces about it, and the questions have, I think people are doing searching, but uh, people would have like, oh, you know, I've got a, and this is true with iMovie too. iMovie is funny because you can, you can chain it. You can have a, I don't know, a nine-year-old iMovie file, and you need, okay, we'll get iMovie 06, which will still run <laughs> on Yosemite, open that, then save it, then get iMovie 08, then get HD, then, you know, and you can you can convert it and not, and actually, I don't know how well it preserves it, but you can convert it. Uh, with Pages, uh, you have to keep – I've been recommending people keep Pages 09 uh, version 4 just to have so they can open older files. But now Pages 5 will open the 06 and 08 versions. Like that's 2 and 3. So two, so everything but I think the initial Pages release. Uh, Numbers 3 goes back one more version, so it'll do 08 and 09. And Keynote 6 will do Pages 06, 08, and 09. So, I mean, sorry, Keynote 6 will do Keynote 06, 08, and 09. Um, but so then you don't have to keep, I, I think it just means, uh, as long as you're happy with what the current version does, you no longer have to keep that elder version around just to, you know, just for that one reason. Um, yeah, that's nice. You can only export to pages 09 in pages 
five, which is fine. You don't need to go back that far, I guess. But yeah, you don't, don't know need to export old versions. <clears throat> yeah, you need that, that would much be com- madness. If you need to export further than that, then you go to like that doc, which just is then sort just of start using text files. <laughs> yeah, and, and <laughs> the I best got- thing about working <clears throat> on the internet now, like my favorite huh. thing is about leaving print, has been uh, just text files all day. <clears throat> just text files and like tiny little JPEGs. I don't have to deal with these big tiffs anymore. I never have to open Word. Ooh. I haven't opened Word in weeks. It's great. I, I like that. I haven't opened Word in years, I think. Occasionally, I'll, uh, I use uh, OpenOffice, which is free, and uh, it's more compatible because it'll open and save uh, almost natively .doc files. So I'll go to that. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Oh, so my review you should of do pages. a comparison between the, the .doc files that Pages makes oh, and then the ones that OpenOffice makes and the ones uh, that... I got a story coming out at some point. Um, it's it's not perishable, but about text edit, how awesome text edit is. It's you know it was developed back in the next platform days, next OS, and uh, it remains an incredible secret powerhouse that not everyone knows about for doing file conversion. So I'll be writing about that. Uh, one more thing to talk about in our grab bag, our potpourri. Um, I wrote this week about uh, or last week rather about Yahoo account key, and then I also encountered this in setting up Windows 10. It turns out it's um it's this approach of of you know, the password being less important, which I like. And um, I wrote the, the column in part because I think intuitively people think, okay, if I don't have a password, my account is less secure. But it's like, no, the password, all someone needs to get into your account from anywhere in the world is the password. If they get it, boom, you're done. And if they get a million passwords, boom, those million accounts are compromised. And also every other account that has the same email address and password at other places like LinkedIn when they had the breach. Turns out people reuse the same email address, obviously, and the same password at lots of sites. So yeah. if you don't have a password, I mean, if you can't log into something with a password, you're never typing it in. So, And um, what Yahoo does is they've got an app uh, their mail app is updated. It can push a login request and you approve it, but there's no, you don't enter a code and they have backup ways and you have to log into the app <clears throat> to set it up and so forth. But um, I just love the idea. And the same thing, Windows uh, 10 had this thing. It's like, Hey, you know, we can, you can use a pin to log in and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll verify it, but you don't have to use a password. If you use the pin, it's actually safer because it's not transmitted. It's like, Oh, okay. And I just, I like this notion that, uh, it's better for people, but it's also more secure because if you're not typing your password, you can't be fished. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a cool trend of companies kind of, um, work, you know, fitting security around the way people work. Cause we've been told for years, like you use, use different passwords for everything, for every single thing and make them complex and don't just, you know, write like, uh, suitcase five or whatever, you know, you know, make make really complex passwords that nobody can crack and mm-hmm. never reuse them and change them all the time. But nobody really does that. So so now these new schemes are kind of like, okay, we know that you have your phone all the time, so we can work with that and just sort of designing systems that work around like normal behaviors. Yeah, and it's more secure to boot. I mean, it, it's more secure and less secure, right? Someone gains access to your equipment. That's always a risk. And I, I think that's the the difference to me is between requiring physical proximity to something you own, which may be locked with a thumbprint. You know, if you set up a new phone, even if you're not a password person, the person, you know, you go to the Apple store, they'll be like, let's set up touch ID. You know, it'll lock your phone, but you always just use your thumb. You can set up, here's how you set up another family member as a backup if you're worried. And you'll always have your passcode. Just, you know, write that down, put it in your wallet, keep it or whatever they tell you to do. Keep it somewhere safe, but you should, you only have to enter your passcode every once in a while. If you reboot, I just got the, um, uh, you have to enter your passcode because it's been 48 hours thing, which I forgot even exists. I don't know how I hadn't hit that before. I think I, I don't know what was going on with the phone 
that it gave I me that was message. not even aware of that. Yeah, I got one. It was um, I had seen that before. It was something like had I not. It's a weird. It was a weird one for um, logging in. Not for making yes. purchases or anything. Huh. This is an interesting one. Somebody, uh, yeah, somebody had had the same thing with it. They'd said uh, if you haven't unlocked a device for forty eight hours, it requires oh. it. Now I don't know how that I would did that never with, happen to me. <laughs> yeah, I think it was actually a glitch. I'm finding actually, I just searched on this. A number of people uh, have reported that their six S uh, was actually giving them this this message, and I've only gotten it once, and I've had the phone for not that long, like two weeks, less than two weeks. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting problem. But uh, but yeah, so if if you're being set up with Touch ID on your phone or other device, and your phone is the primary thing for most people, or not most people, a lot of people now, the phone is their mechanism, uh, and you have an app that pushes logins to it, then suddenly not having a password, oh my gosh, it's so much more secure. Your thumbprint is the thing, unless someone gets a hold of you. And the odds of that are so much lower. And if someone's going to break into your computers locally or gain access to you physically and force you to use your thumbprint, that's a whole other scenario. And it's a very, very small footprint of probability versus Mm -hmm. all the hackers in the world trying to get your password all the time and all the fishers in the world trying to do it. So I like that. Yeah, it's always funny when you see people kind of like digging on two-factor authentication and they're saying like, oh, okay, so then it texts me a code, but the code comes up on the very device that I'm trying to log in on. Like, how is that safe? And you're like, that's actually very safe because the chances of someone knowing your password and having your phone are pretty slim. Like, that's probably you. You know your password, (laughs) you're holding your phone, that's probably you. So it's good that the code came right to your phone. This is two-factor with one factor. And, and in fact, you know, so I've written before about the uh, uh, the FIDO Alliance. It's a group for, um, has uh, Google and Samsung and a bunch of other companies that are trying to simplify um, better uh, login procedures, let's say, or th- authentication. And they have both a two-factor thing that uses a public key and it's like a little USB device and so forth. But they also have a single factor thing where uh, you may never, it's the same process, but it's going to be formalized and it's a standard. And so one of them is UTF and the other is, I think it's UAF, universal authentication factor. And the idea is that, yeah, you may have a passcode. You might be asked for it at times, but with this thing, because it uses public key encryption, you wind up registering with sites and they know your public key and you know the response they gave you. So you're two way authenticated. If you go to a site and it doesn't give you the right response, uh, your device will say, Hey, there is somebody involved in this transaction. It's not you because it doesn't match. When you go to the site and you can't present the public key, the site goes, oh, that's not a valid login because we have this cryptographic thing that this doesn't match. So I don't care who you say you are, what pin you have, you are not the right source. Uh, And that should be simpler for people because it's going to be as easy as retaining, you know, a tiny USB key or putting a, pushing a button in an app as opposed to this whole elaborate, you know, right. The most difficult path. I got one the other day. It's like, you know, it must be uh, between eight and 12 characters and out of whatever. And I'm like, I keep trying to, have you seen, there's a tweet that's going around. It's one of the most retweeted tweets. I think someone, it just says someone saying password, you know, tap, yeah, password denied, password denied or, or incorrect password, incorrect password, like five times. And then you must set a new password. And then the message is, uh, cannot reuse previous existing password. Yes, yes. <laughs> like, oh, like, that is the scenario. Wait a oh, so we'll we'll end on that happy note. Less fewer passwords, more security. And uh well thank you, Susie. Pleasure to talk to you about our grab bag. Thanks, Glenn. Talk to you next week. Excellent. And this has been episode four hundred and seventy nine. Of the Macworld Podcast for October 21st, 2015, we were brought to you this week by Red Hat and Casper. 
I am, and I believe I remain, Glenn Fleischman, a senior contributor to Macworld. And uh, you can give us feedback. Send email to podcast at macworld.com. Go to macworld.com and leave comments on our podcast post and let us know, and even via, via Twitter. You can find us on Twitter, too, about what you'd like us to talk about and answer, and we will do so. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye.